0: Hey everybody, Pastor Chris here. Thanks for listening to our Market Street Podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope today's message helps you in your walk with Jesus. For more ways to connect, visit us at marketstreetchurch.org. Okay, so we're talking about silent nights, silent nights, and really what that's about is 400 year period of where God, there was no written word, no recorded written word, uh, at least put into our canon of scripture. Um, also, there was no prophetic person, there was no prophet, uh, prophecies spoken um, within uh, you know, God's people, um, and so there, there's just no re- recording of that. And so that's why uh, there was just this long, long period of silent nights, um, and oftentimes there's some things that we do uh, when it comes to times where we feel like God is silent in our life, and the way that we respond to that is so critical, so important. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians four four, he says for but when the fullness of time came, and so when when the time was right, when God set the table or when God set the stage, uh, he it says that he God sent His Son, and that and that Son was born of a woman, and we're gonna figure out talk about how that came to be, uh, born under the law, and so and then verse five he says. Uh, so that he might redeem those who were under the law and that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. And so um, so what we've covered so far, just to catch everybody up, maybe you haven't, you know, maybe you missed some things or maybe you haven't, you know, been able to really stay. I know this has been a lot of content and a lot of historical references. I get it. And so, so far, what we've what we've discovered is what God has done is is that in Galatians 4, what, we, what I just read, and all of the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, a common language. So Alexander the Great and, and his empire um, and what he did, he, he established and he wanted the whole world, the whole world to be what, what was coined, uh, coined Hellenized, Hellenized. And so uh, and a part of the Hellenization of the whole world, he wanted everybody to have a common language. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, and all the rest of our New Testament scriptures were all originally written. So the way that God's word and God's message, God's good news was communicated for the very first time was in a language that was established by a pagan ruler named Alexander III, or you may know him as Alexander the Great. And so a common language has now been established. is a a common language among the Gentile world, okay, around the Gentile world. This is what the language that they spoke. The other thing that we looked at was God-fearing priests and Pharisees fought to keep Judea under the law. And so as Hellenization is happening and, and the world is, is turning, you know, pagan, as it, it, fast as you can even imagine, there was God-fearing priests, God-fearing Pharisees even though we read the New Testament and think Pharisee bad bad guy these were originally good guys good people with great intentions and that was to make sure to make sure that God's people God's people stayed under the rule of the Mosaic law that was the the ambition and they did that and so when Jesus came When Jesus came, the setting of of the stage was that that they were under the law, under the law. And what does the law remind us of? What does the law do? It reminds us of where we fall short of God. And we can't meet the standards of God. But the good news is, is that God sent his son as a gift of grace for us. God knew, you can't meet my standard. But my son did. And so you don't have to behave. This is so important. You don't have to behave your way into right standing with God. You believe through Jesus, and you can have right standing with God. So it was critically important that it was under the law. And guys like, and people, priests and Pharisees made sure that, that happened. The third thing is what we're going to talk about today. Today is a guided tour of how the greatest gift to the world was born of a lady. I had to say lady because I had all these L's going already so far. So Paul says born of a woman, born of a lady. I just had language, law, lady. I had to do it. Okay. All right. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So where we pick it up now is is ab- is about uh it's the end of the uh you know the last century uh or it's called the first century bc or or the last century uh a.d and so this is sort of where we pick it up in the story and in rome has now come into form rome has come into form and the reason why rome and it was a, known as the roman republic was, was coming into strength and power and authority and establishing order uh, to a splintered Hellenized world that was going on. They came in and they, they gave order to things. They gave rule to things. They they organized things so much better than any other nation. And the reason why was a guy by the name of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was an incredible general. He was a very smart, intelligent, strategic person. He was he did amazing things. He conquered many territories. He gathered up all of this, you know, now known territory that that occupies the the Roman providences and the Roman Republic. And the reason why Julius Caesar was so successful is because he was good at gathering people that had wealth and money to support him. And so he had the richest people in the Roman Republic supporting his cause. And, and, and as a result of that wealth, he was becoming more and more influential, more and more powerful. Not only did he have the aristocrats supporting him in his, in his you know, endeavors of, of you know, making Rome and, and bringing on what is now known as the glory of Rome, he also galvanized and strengthened young, amazing, incredible generals. One specifically, and his name was Pompey. Pompey, And so he had this young general, and as a matter of fact, Julius and Pompey were, were good friends. They, be, they had a great relationship. Um, Julius Caesar's daughter, Julia, married Pompey, and so they had an a, a incredible tight relationship between the two of them. So the wealth of Julius Caesar and the support that he had there, you know, the, the strength of the military uh, because, because of the leadership of Pompey, Uh, The Roman Republic was just really becoming stronger, stronger, and stronger. Meanwhile, in a little uh, 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 section, uh, Middle East is is Judea. Okay, Judea. Now they're going through a civil war because of two brothers who who were vying for the same position. The two brothers, their names were Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II. These were brothers who were vying for what at this time was the leadership position or the authority position in Judea, and that was the position of a high priest, a high priest. The high priest had, had the religious authority and they had the judicial authority. And so these two guys, these two brothers were vying for position. So they, none of them could really, nobody could really settle on who was gonna be the one and only high priest. And so they, they asked their friends, the Roman Republic, to come and help them. They were, they were friends, they were partners, and so the, they, 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 they asked for the Roman Republic to come and, and, and help them. So in comes now Pompey. Pompey comes in, and Judea, and now this is the beginning. This is the start of a a um, a, a freedom that it, that uh, Judea at once had. They had independence. They had religious independence. They had judicial independence for a hundred years. And the reason why they had that was because of the Maccabean revolt. And so they are now. They out ask for aid. They ask for help from this up-and-coming powerhouse called the Roman Republic, Pompey comes in and, and, and his military comes in and they don't ever leave. And now for a 100 years, they're now regretting not being able to get along with each other And they're now regretting not being able to solve things on their own. And they're regretting asking for the help of the Roman Republic. Because when Pompey, this great general, comes in to Jerusalem, one of the first things that he does is something that no general should ever do anywhere. He stepped into the holies of holies, which was a no-no. Only the high priest was allowed to go into the, what they called the Holies of Holies. And the high priest was only allowed to go in there one time a year, the, called on the Day of Atonement. And if you walked into the Holies of Holies and you weren't a high priest, oftentimes what would happen is that that high priest, whether, if they weren't a high priest or if they were, had any kind of impurities, they were struck dead on the spot. So Pompey walks in through the priest, through the holy place, through the courts, and he steps into the holies of holies, and everybody's now thinking he's not coming out. But he did. He did. And what what was viewed as, wait a minute, the God of Israel truly is, silent, and a general walked into the most holy room in the whole world, and he lived to tell about it, and people of Israel are going, wait a minute, why didn't Yahweh do anything, and it looks like, it looks like the God of Jupiter is more powerful than Israel's God. Of Yahweh. Pompey continues to have influence and he decides that he's going to take the side of Hyrcanus II. And so, as a result of that, Aristobulus dies because Aristobulus says, No, I'm going to fight. And Pompey says, Bring it on, buddy. and, And Pompey took him out. And Aristobulus II was killed. And he reason he supported Hyrcanus II is because he was sort of the weaker of the two brothers. And so it was a strategic move by Pompey. He was sort of just going to be a puppet in this territory for the Roman Empire. So by the time Pompey goes through and has victories, multiple victories, multiple victories, bringing in more territory, annexing more cities like Jerusalem, and establishing the Roman Republic within these cities like Jerusalem. If Pompey goes back to Julius Caesar, and he sees himself as equal to Julius Caesar. And he is going, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, I'm. why is he getting all the recognition? Why is he getting all the power when I'm doing all the work and power corrupts, doesn't it? And it corrupts to the point where Pompey goes, you know what, I want to be, and I think I am, as powerful as my hero, Alexander. And so from now on, I want everybody to call me Pompey the Great. And now Julius Caesar and Pompey are at odds. Pompey, of course, divorces his wife, Julia, because that's the daughter of Julius Caesar. Meanwhile, in Egypt, are you guys bored yet? I'm really anxious about not having my notes not near me. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Egypt, a guy by the name of Ptolemy Thirteenth, Ptolemy XIII, it's okay, it's good, I'm good, I'm good ptolemy the 13th is in egypt and he's the, sort of the pharaoh of egypt at that at that time and so ptolemy the 13th is oh thank you thank thank you thank you so much appreciate it so ptolemy the 13th is um a, a long descendant of of ptolemy the first right these clever names right these people and their clever names Ptolemy I was one of the—remember we talked about Alexander the Great had four generals uh, that, that, that took over for, uh, for him and his power after he died? Well, Ptolemy first was one of those four generals. So there's a long line of, of Ptolemies that go. And so at this point, we're at Ptolemy XIII, and, um, and Julius and Pompey are at odds with one another— and and julius caesar is winning uh the wars over pompey so julius has his army po- uh, pompey has his army and so Julius uh, uh, julius forces pompey to flee and pompey thinks i'm gonna go to egypt i'm gonna go to egypt and i'm gonna see if i can get reinforcement for my army to go up against julius caesar well as soon as Pompey shows up to Egypt, specifically um, Alexandria, which was named after uh, Alexander the Great. By the way, Alexander the Great named almost every city that he conquered Alexandria. So there wasn't just Alexandria in Egypt. There was over uh, hundreds of Alexandrias named every time he went. He called it. He just called it Alexandria. Fun fact, except for one city, he named it after his wounded favorite horse. Aww. (laughs) Alexander had a soft spot for his horse, and I don't remember the horse's name. Not important, Ed. Yeah, there you go. So, Pompey shows up to Alexandria... And Ptolemy is about 15 years old. And Ptolemy's not a dummy. Ptolemy's going, wait a second. Julius Caesar is, is doing well. He's having more victories. He's got Pompey on the run. And so as soon as Pompey shows up to Alexandria, and the minute he steps off his boat, Ptolemy the 13th has him beheaded. You can't make this stuff up. Meanwhile, the sister of Ptolemy the Thirteenth is a woman that was known as Cleopatra. Now, Cleopatra was, it was not, was, a, was her name, but it was more than a name, it was a, it was a title. It was a title, it, was, it meant ruler or queen. And, and she was actually one of the, the last pharaohs of, of Egypt. I'm getting a little bit uh, ahead of myself. And so, Ptolemy um, the 13th and his sister Cleopatra, they, um, they, um, next slide. Yep, there you, there you go. Pompey's dead. Pompey's dead. Now, Cleopatra, now, yeah, I'm, I jumped ahead too, a little bit too far. Caesar hears that Ptolemy kills Pompey. Follow, follow, follow me for a second. Julius Caesar hears that Ptolemy the 13th killed Pompey, and it angered Julius Caesar that he had Ptolemy Thirteenth killed. As a matter of fact, he had him drowned in the Nile River because Julius Caesar thought, listen, that is not any way that a distinguished general should die, that as soon as he steps off his boat that his head is cut off. And Julius Caesar had Ptolemy the 13th drowned to death. When they asked Julius Caesar, did you drown Ptolemy the 13th? You know what he did? He denied it. I wrote that in. That was in my notes. I'm so glad I remembered it. And they said it's not just a river in Egypt, I guess. OK. All right. Anyways, so now, Cleopatra is now in charge. The reason why Cleopatra is in charge is because Julius Caesar thought Cleopatra was a beautiful, smart, intelligent, and she was, but she was also manipulative, diabolical, conniving seductress. She was all of those things. And so, Julius Caesar, he puts Cleopatra in charge, or as the last pharaoh of Egypt, and he begins to have a relationship with her. And they have a son. His name was Cesaron. Cesaron. okay? Then, go back, Neva, go back. Don't jump ahead of me, Neva. Don't jump ahead of me. Then, the Senate and Rome, they get, they don't like that Julius Caesar and Cleopatra are in a relationship. They don't, they don't trust her. She's on her, has her own agenda. You know, she's got her own thing going. You know, she's real diabolical. They, they, they don't, they just don't trust her. And so the Senate decides, listen, we, we've got to control the situation. And so they decided that they are going to create and and, and cause like where this where Julius Caesar was assassinated and he was assassinated by his own friends and his own senators so Julius Caesar is now dead and they think well Julius Caesar's dead Cleopatra she has no power and meanwhile they have a son together Caesaron. but before Julius Caesar dies he's got two guys that are ready to take his position in case he does die these guys their names are octavian who was the nephew of julius caesar but but uh he wanted octavian because octavian again was similar to pompey was a very smart intelligent strong general who made incredible influences in within the roman republic and so he uh adopted octavian in hopes that when he dies that octavian would be his heir to, to the throne Or to the, 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 the role of Caesar But he also had another guy Another general who he loved and respected And his name was Mark Antony Mark Antony Now when, when Julius and Cleopatra Were together uh, In their relationship um, Mark Antony Was also in, in the picture Around the same time And they, they took a liking to each other And so when Julius Caesar died She hooked up with mark antony mark antony and so she decides you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna seduce him and i'm gonna you know have you know power with him and we're gonna we're gonna be strong and from my my resources in egypt and and mark antony's resources in in rome and we're gonna go up against this guy by the name of octavian octavian and so octavian you know is is just better than them he's just stronger than he's smarter he's more strategic and so it gets to a point where basically at the a final battle, somewhere around 31 B.C., uh, the Battle of Actium, that, they, um, that Octavian has Mark, Antony, and Cleopatra on the run. And so Cleopatra decides that she's going to head back to Alexandria, and she's going to come up with a strategic plan. And her strategic plan was is that she was going to pretend or fake that she died, that she committed suicide. Knowing that, knowing that Mark Antony would come now, they, what what are speculated is is that Cleopatra uh, was gonna was gonna dis, you know pretend fake her death, but she was also gonna try to see if she can you know maneuver and manipulate and and sort of join Octavian's side because really all Cleopatra wanted was she wanted control and she wanted power. That's all all that she wanted, and so she tries to manipulate it to where she you know. Pretends and fakes her own death, knowing that Mark Antony will follow her there. Well, once he hears or thinks that she dies, Mark Antony decides that he's going to kill himself too. And he he lays himself on the sword. This was so good of a drama that Shakespeare thought, I'm going to use this. (laughs) And so Mark Antony, ultimately, he commits suicide but in as before he breathes his last breath he realizes that cleopatra is still alive she then ensues to try to make sure that she still has relationships or tries to you know manipulate and get into position to where she can now join forces with octavian and octavian says no thank you no thank you and once she realizes she's defeated uh, somehow or another, she was able to get an asp, which is an Egyptian cobra, and she was able to poison herself with an asp, and she ultimately committed suicide. And now, Octavian has the power and the control that was always meant to be, and the person that Yahweh wanted to have power. So when that happened, Octavian is now the sole ruler of Rome. And once Octavian becomes the sole ruler of Rome, Octavian uh, was a, he wasn't really a power-hungry kind of a guy. He wasn't really one that was he, was, he was gaining so much traction and had so much power and so much influence, but he really didn't want it. As a matter of fact, Octavian wanted to turn the power back over to the Roman Senate. He wanted the Roman Senate to have the power. And he would constantly push back and say, listen, I, this is not a dictatorship. This is a Senate-run thing. You guys control this but they wanted to continue to give him power which is what humans always want to do humans always want to give somebody else or something else more powerful them the authority in their life and so he's trying to push back they're trying to give it to him and so eventually when he gives when he gives the power to the senate the senate ultimately puts kings in different regions around the areas in which they annexed and the areas in which they controlled. One of the kings that that the Senate of Rome put into power in Judea was a guy by the name of Herod. And Herod was an egomaniac. And he wanted to be known as Herod, the king of the Jews. And anybody who came up against Herod, as as a you know foretold king, that he was going to do everything in his power to make sure that no king rose up. He was a madman. He was a crazy man. As a matter of fact, on a, on his de- near his death, he ordered the death of so many uh, great men and generals, so that on the day that he died, that there would be mourning in that land there would be grieving in that land because he knew that when he died that nobody would grieve him unless he manipulated some grieving and mourning to happen he was crazy so now you have octavian you have Herod the great and the roman senate said listen we don't want to call you Octavian anymore because of your great influence. As a matter of fact, the, the, that now it's no longer a Roman Republic. It's now known as a Roman Empire. And the first Roman Caesar of the Empire is the one that they deemed his new name. His, no, his name was no longer to be called Octavian. He was going to be referred to as Caesar Caesar. Augustus, Caesar, Augustus, a ruler, Caesar, a ruler, Augustus means a revered deity. They, reve- they saw him as a ruler, but they also saw him as a god. Listen, now the stage was set. The stage was set. And now you have in this time... You have Greek reasoning. You have Aristotle. You have Plato. You have Socrates. You have Pythagoras. You have all these philosophy, Greek reasoning, setting the stage, Hellenism. People were burned out by hedonism. Then you, now, then you have Jewish religion, and they were under the law. And now you have a Roman Organized rule. And then in Luke 2, 1 says this Luke 2, 1 says this. Here we go. There it is. Now in those days, the fullness of time. Was complete. And when the fullness of time was complete and the stage was set, you've got Greek reasoning, you've got Jewish religion, and you've got your Roman rule in those days. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. And then it says. Here, a sovereign Lord, a sovereign Lord is always setting the stage in the silence. Isn't that good news? A sovereign Lord is always setting the stage in silence the silence. God says, listen, I know, I know who I want to be in the right position, in the right time, that even though a guy like Pompey and all of his arrogance can walk into the temple, and you think that I am up to nothing, I am up to everything. And when you don't think, when you think that I am inactive, is oftentimes when God is the most Because a sovereign Lord is always setting the stage in silence. And every time when we, when you and I are playing checkers, God is playing chess. It says, now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, Octavian, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Verse 2. This was the first census taken why Quirinius was governor of Syria. Time out, pause. I don't have time to get into all of that other than, other than to tell you that Quirinius or Cyrenius or whatever version you want to read that in, he was governor twice, two times he was governor. The first time he was governor, and it took a few years, it took a few years to figure this out but ultimately was discovered by um, an a archaeologist who was out to, dis- to try to disprove the Bible But when he was going out to try to disprove the Bible, he actually discovered that the Bible was true, and he became a Jesus follower. So he started out as not a Jesus follower, trying to disprove the Bible, and then when he went to discover things and and bring things up out of the earth, he realized the Bible truly is accurate. He said that Luke, Luke was a first-rate historian, the guy who's writing this is a first-rate historian. And so he discovers, he discovers that that Quirinius was governor twice. And here's the other thing that Quirinius did. Quirinius changed the age of a a girl who would have to go and, and, and take a poll tax, which is what the census was about. The census was about a poll tax. It was discovering how many people were in within the Roman Empire and how many people they could tax for a particular reason, and I'll get to that in a second. Quirinius, it was the age of 15 that a, uh, and older, 15 and older, that a young girl had to go and to, and to register and, and for, the, for the poll tax. He changed it from 15 to 12. He changed it from 15 to 12. It's quite possible It's quite possible that if it stayed at 15, that Mary wouldn't have had to have gone and registered with her husband Joseph. But because Quirinius changed the age to 12, she had to go. Kind of cool, huh? Okay, verse 3. And all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was a house in the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him, and she was pregnant. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came. Paul says in the fullness of time, right? Right? In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Or in my notes, born of a lady. And they were there, and the time came for her to give birth. Okay, give me a few minutes. Augustus ordered a census through God's providence. To be with us. Isn't that good? Augustus ordered a census through God's providence, and we looked at all the different moves that God did in order to put Augustus, Caesar, Octavian in that position to order a census through God's providence so that Jesus can be with us now. And forever now when God is with us here's what you need to know and I need to know there's never a dead end you hear me when God is with you and he is no matter how bad bleak difficult confusing wondering what is he doing why is this happening where are you are you done listen there's never a dead end there's always an inroad to you there's always an inroad to your kids there's always an inroad to your grandkids There's always an inroad to that coworker. There's always an inroad to that boss. There's always an inroad to you. God, with God, there's never a dead end. It is never, ever open. You remember? Over, he said to Mary, listen, I know, I know, it seems impossible, but with me, God says, all things. Are possible. Can, does anybody believe that in this room? Is, can anybody put that on the chat? Come on. What this is all about is us so in, seeing, listen, God, you, uh, man, I don't even understand, like, I'm, I'm so confused. You lost me at Julius Caesar. I went to Little Caesars, and then now I just want pizza. I, I get it. But this is the point is, the point is that what was deemed as over and what was deemed as impossible is not over. There's never a dead end. Do you know what the Romans did? Do you know what the Romans did that they did so well? And there's sayings that are now familiar and go out and say, all road, Have you ever heard this? All roads lead to Rome. You know why? It's because Rome created what was called the, the Pax Romana, the Pax Romana, which, was a, which meant Roman peace and prosperity. And so the Romans, under the leadership in the, in the rule of, 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 of Octavian, or his now entitled Caesar Augustus, they created a safe road system. They built roads of travel. And because of how Rome was so authoritative And so heavy-handed on their rule that no one ever, ever dared, ever dared to to create chaos or problem within the Roman Empire if they did, they were done. There was no patience for any nonsense. It's because Rome says, listen, we're going to create this, we're going to have peace and there's going to be prosperity. People are going to be able to travel and travel and travel wherever they want to go, and everybody's going to, be, everybody's going to be fine. Everybody's going to be able to get to their destination. Do you know why? Do you know why Joseph and Mary were never concerned, never concerned of how they could get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? A 70-mile, the only thing that Joseph had to worry about was a nine-month-old pregnant wife. That's enough. That's enough. But they didn't have to worry about their safety. And you know why? Because God established Roman rule. He established Roman rule. They could travel with peace, and they could travel with prosperity. Here's what Job says in Job 42, and you know Job's story. I know that you can do all things, and that no plan is impossible for you. Do you come on, come on, own this today. I know that you can do all things, God, and no plan is impossible for you. He says this, who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared to that which I did not understand. Boy, talk about a guy who just didn't understand what was going on in his life. But I just didn't understand things too wonderful for me which I do not know. And then he says, I have heard of you. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. <laughs> you have a God who's got a plan. You have a God that is orchestrating things. You have a God who has an inroad, an inroad for you for your loved one, for those that you know and don't know Christ, and you're going, I don't know what else I can do. I've I've thought of everything. I've tried to manipulate everything. I've tried to plan everything. I've tried to orchestrate everything. Listen, listen, let God, let God work it out. Because I don't know. God says, listen, I I know you've heard of me, but I want you to see Me work, because I'm a God that can do the impossible. I'm a God that wherever you think is a dead end, whenever you think it's over, God says, that's where I start. That's where I start. You think it's over, and God's going, good. I finally got you where I want you to be. Let's go. Because you're going to go for more than just hearing about me; you're going to now going to be able to see me work. Let me give you another one. When God is with us, He paves the way to the Prince of Peace. You see, peace—the peace that Jesus gives—is not the absence of trouble. Ah, stink but rather the confidence that He is there with you always. The Jews had, had this word for peace, and you know it. It's shalom, shalom, right? And it, peace for that word, it was, was more than just, you know, situations or circumstances. It wasn't the absence of, of, of hard trials or difficulties or challenges. It was this, it was character over circumstances. It was, listen, listen, I want to pave the road for you so you can experience the Prince of Peace. But as, I, as you walk down that road, I want you to know, I want you to know that I'm more interested, this is so critically important for us, I want you to know that I'm more interested in your character than your circumstances. Be better. I want you to walk down that road and I want you to discover that even in your tough situation that you can still experience the prince of peace because it's character over circumstances. Listen, there is no peace. And when Jesus showed up, here's what they discovered. There is no peace in Greek reasoning There is no peace in religion. And there is certainly no peace in Roman rule. And there is certainly no peace in the American dream. You want to know peace? It's not in here. You want to know peace? It was in the city of David. There was born for you a Savior. And he was Christ the Lord. Hey. You want to know peace? It's Jesus. It's not Greek philosophy. It's not religion. It's not what you find in American dream. It is only found in Jesus. That's it. So you walk down that road that God paved for you and me. And say, God, I don't know why I'm going through this circumstance or this situation. And and I know that you oftentimes don't remove me from it. But as I'm walking down this road, God, I know that you're going to give me the peace to travel it. And I don't oftentimes know where I'm going. And it sometimes feels like a dead end. But nothing is too difficult for you. And there's never a dead end with God. Never. Father, we are um, floored at how you strategically used the most powerful people in the world as pawns for your purposes and your purposes were ultimately to put those people to make free will decisions already foreknowing what they would do and how they would respond that you put in your foreknowledge and your predetermined sovereignty rulers in place to set the table for the one king who is to rule in our hearts. The king who nothing is too difficult for. The king who brings peace even when the world brings chaos. And so, Father, I just pray this Christmas season as we travel down these Roman roads, that we experience you and we not just hear about you, but what we see you. We don't just show up to church or, what, or listen to a podcast or whatever it is. that We just hear about you, but that we really begin to see you work. And oftentimes, you start your work at our dead end. That's where you begin. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that we continue to walk with you and to experience and to see you for who you are, the king of all kings, the king of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.